Hey there, I hope this uh, segment finds you well. I'm Jeffrey. I'm a global Methodist pastor. I talk about things pertaining to the United Methodist and global Methodist schism, split, whatever you want to call it. This particular segment, um, first off, it corresponds with an article I've actually written on uh, Substack that I've made just for plain spoken. So if you want to consider this sort of uh, framework I'm going to present in writing, then um, check your show notes and you can go directly to the article from wherever you're at. Um, I published a piece yesterday on... uh, Kind of, it used a New York Times article written by uh, Ruth Graham, which describes to her audience, the New York Times audience, the nature of what she quotes uh, a political scientist named Ryan Burge calling the biggest denominational split ever. I've since seen a qualifier saying since the Civil War. This quote that she used was really vindicating for people like me who were openly like mocked and, and kind of scoffed at by United Methodist leadership that for a long time said, oh, nobody's really going to be interested in disaffiliation. We really don't need to, to be in, uh, too concerned about this. Um, if, if you're like me, you remember bits and pieces of the history where uh, for a while we had paragraph 2548.2, which could be used for disaffiliation until they closed the door on that. Then, um, you know, most annual conferences focused on paragraph 2553 is the only way out, and they put a, a, a lot of them put a lot of strictures in the way. Uh, but there were conferences that refused to even want to do that, like uh, South Carolina and West Virginia. They insisted on only using paragraph 2549, which closes the church and then sells it back to the community there. I think this is largely because United Methodist leadership didn't want to acknowledge that there was a problem and that people were right to be concerned and upset about how the denomination was unfolding and and being conducted. Another way, reason that you see this kind of uh, justified in my mind is the reluctance of the denomination, the United Methodist Church, to even acknowledge the global Methodist Church as a valid denominational body. So if you've followed, say, affairs in Louisiana, they're not the only one to do this, Uh, They've been quite explicit that any retired United Methodist clergy that choose to associate with the Global Methodist Church will lose some of their health benefits. So in my annual, former annual conference in Oklahoma, they sent out a letter to retired clergy as well saying that they were not to do anything at all affiliated with the GMC, even though, as Chris Ritter pointed out in a recent article, uh, it's very common for United Methodist clergy to do all kinds of things with other denomina- denominational bodies. That is, uh, the GMC is persona non grata in UMC circles, and, and that's because uh, the GMC is the embodiment of their failure. And if you watch my recent piece, the size of that failure is that the United Methodist Church has now lost a little over 25% of its churches Uh which is is quite astounding. Now, not all of those went to the Global Methodist Church. I I think 60 or 70 percent have so far. We'll see how many go in the end. But even so, the GMC is the main body to which those that have left have now flocked and and are hoping that they can right the ship and do Methodism right in the way uh, that the UMC went wrong. So rather than blame this whole disaffiliation schism uh, on dysfunctional institutional leadership, as I and others have done. Uh, Graham, the New York Times article author, instead sums it up 
this way. She says, At issue for Methodists is the question of ordaining and marrying LGBTQ people, a topic that has splintered many other Protestant denominations and which Methodists have been debating for years. Now, I suspect her terse and unsatisfying explanation is partly because she is speaking to her audience. New York Times leans left, and they like simple, two-dimensional answers. Um, and then partly because she was restricted. It, it was not a long piece, and if you had all, you could probably write a, a piece that long just on the reasons. Well, and that's kind of what this is going to be. So in my segment, I chose to pick on other things that she said. Well, I didn't really pick on much, uh, but... I had a guy named Brad who wrote me, and he was a bit confused or frustrated that I chose just to let that phrase, that that reasoning slide, that it was all about the LGBTQ stuff. Here's what he said to me. He said, as I watched this morning, I noticed that the secular articles consistently say that we are separating because of human sexuality or homosexuality. Am I wrong in thinking that we are separating because people continue to violate the United Methodist Book of Discipline? I've always thought that the secular articles were painting us traditionalists as homophobes. Can you address this in one of your videos, or am I just seeing this from the wrong perspective? So I have two primary answers to this, um, and in, in the article I, I don't say this, but homophobia is in most ways just a, a fabrication of people on the left who don't really want to understand people on the right. They're just, oh, they're just irrationally afraid of gay people. That's really not the case for the vast majority of, of right-leaning evangelical traditionalist people. It's not based in fear. It's based in a larger concern about social fabric and morality and, and being right with God. So that, that needs to be summarily dismissed. But is it right for Graham to say that the primary precipitating issue is around LGBTQ persons. So I have two primary responses to this. One is uh, to, to Brad. Yes, absolutely any sane and unbiased person should be deeply concerned about how the United Methodist Church has refused to stick by its covenant and, and governing uh, bodies such that you don't even need to be particularly worried about LGBTQ stuff to come to the conclusion that the United Methodist Church is not a good organization to be a part of. But the second part of my response is that critical gender theory, which is the ideology that's undergirding all of this, this drift left with re regard to uh, gender and sexuality, that it's actually a touchstone issue for a great number of folks who have otherwise tolerated a lot of liberal drift in the United Methodist Church. It's not as though the United Methodist Church was a right-leaning, staunch, traditionalist organization before all this gay stuff began. Rather, it's had significant liberal components uh, for over a century that were, I mean, it was frustrating and there was pushback against it, but the point at which it became intolerable was around the gay stuff. So I'm, I'm simultaneously agreeing with Brad and many others that, hey, LGBTQ stuff doesn't even need to figure in, but I'm also saying, but it, it does figure in and it really matters. And I, I think it's important to lean into that. So what follows is uh, some more granular analysis around that. So um, there are many churches and individuals who felt strongly that it was right to leave the United Methodist Church who didn't really care about gay marriage. Uh, they didn't care about gay ordination, normalization of homosexuality in the shared life of the church. They don't particularly care about maintaining biological gender. This is what it means to be a man and a woman. So I've had dozens of people write me 
who don't really care about that stuff. I've, I've had gay people write me who uh, are, well, gay people, people sympathetic with uh, gay people or trans people, but who see with clear eyes just how detestably the United Methodist Church's leadership has acted in steamrolling clear majority opinion at the global, uh, the, the general conference. One very intelligent commentator on my YouTube channel, uh, Natasha, she's, she leans left. She is all about the gay agenda, liberalization of all that stuff, but she regularly comments that she is in support. Um, well, she, she regularly comments that uh, the United Methodist Church is self-evidently narcissistic, dysfunctional, abusive. And so there are a lot of people like Natasha. There, there are a ton of people who just see... Um, that the United Methodist Church is, is dysfunctional. It disrespects its member churches and, and, and individual members. And I, I call this group the practical group. So they, they may or may not lean left, but they just are not concerned about the homosexuality stuff. They're concerned about good governance. So there are others who are not necessarily very concerned about shifting sexual ethics and norms, but they worship at other altars that make them uncomfortable with the United Methodist Church. So churches like uh, St. Luke's in Oklahoma City made clear that their disaffiliation process was not motivated by a right-leaning rejection of, of uh, creeping leftism. Rather, they were concerned about church growth. Uh, they noted rightly that ever since the inception of the United Methodist Church, it's been in decline every single year. They also pointed out that the incentive structure is kind of perverse where more money is asked of churches that are making more disciples and growing to support those that aren't. So uh, those who worship at the altar of church growth see it rightly, the United Methodist Church, as a moribund and sclerotic institution that will continue to be a drag on otherwise dynamic growing churches in hip, urban, and suburban areas. So this, this group that is not necessarily concerned with human sexuality, but they are concerned with church growth, I would just call the growers. So we've got the practical, we've got the growers. Third group, uh, they don't worship at the altar necessarily of church growth. They're not necessarily all about church governance, but they care a lot about evangelical zest. So they care about, uh, they, they care about these other things, but what they really care about is revival, excitement, renewal. Um, they're not very concerned necessarily about sexual purity or faithfulness, but they are concerned about the gifts of the Spirit and the excitement that is seen in the global charismatic movement. So the, the mainline and bureaucratic culture of the United Methodist Church is seen as just uh, a, a wet towel on the fiery movement of the Holy Spirit, and they just needed to get clear of that so that they could once again claim this Holy Spirit movement. I would call this group, obviously, charismatics. There's a, there's a huge charismatic movement that, whether or not they cared about human sexuality, they knew that the United Methodist Church would not be a happy fit for them anymore because it hadn't been a happy fit for a long time. So you got the practical, you got the growers, and you got the charismatics. Um, and they represent a huge number of the churches and individuals that decided to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. So it's, it's quite possible that they are a large majority of the disaffiliators where they really don't care that much about creeping uh, critical gender theory or, or uh, cultural Marxism, if you know these terms, they're just not concerned about that. It's, it's not something that motivated them. So to say that um, disaffiliation was motivated primarily by the LGBTQ stuff, 
is not really accurate for them. Now, there's no way to know what percentage these people represent in total disaffiliators, but it is, I mean, it's going to be shown over time. But there are a lot of people that don't fit into these three categories. Uh, a lot of folks who really did leave because of the self-evident victory of the sexual revolution in the United Methodist Church. Those of us who believe that the Bible is actually a divine document and an accurate representation of the divine design of the Christian faith, we know that sexual conduct and identity and expression are actually very important. Those of us who believe in damnation, sin, divine wrath, we believe that the ascendant ideology in the United Methodist Church is, in a very real sense, evil and will drag many thousands, if not millions, of people into hell. So when we prevailed, the traditionalists prevailed in 2019, and the progressives simply chose to stay and not leave, uh, and the bishops chose to give them cover, we, uh, biblical people, realized that the United Methodist Church leadership was now all a farce. The will of the General Conference, the functioning of the general commissions and agencies, the job of the bishops, it was now exposed as a lie. The United Methodist Church had has been overtaken by an ideology that sees itself as being on the right side of history and can no longer tolerate these signposts of the past that have now been deemed harmful to a victim class. The elites who have been put in authority have little reservation about trampling on the heritage that they have received, the, the authority that, that they've been given by the church. They don't even really care about the gospel of Jesus Christ if it doesn't already conform to their notions of right and wrong. Folks like me paid a lot of money and went through a lot of mess in order to take the assets that previous generations had entrusted to us, to our churches, for God's glory. I would also be a, a bad public thinker if I did not acknowledge that Methodism has long been a hotbed of faithlessness and, frankly, uh, some demonic theology. Uh, folks who should have been defrocked or dismissed from our ranks were not only tolerated but often elevated long before now. What transpired in recent years around LGBTQ activism was simply the straw that broke the camel's back. So um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, hopefully I'll be doing some segments on uh, some of the history that got us here, but there's long been radical left-leaning leadership in the United Methodist Church and its preceding uh, denominational bodies. So the crew with which I identify, we care about good governance, we care about reaching more people, we care about walking rightly with the Spirit, but before all of these things, we raise up the concern of biblical faithfulness. Without biblical faithfulness, the best governed, the fastest growing, the most exciting denomination will still be an affront to God. We will choose biblical faithfulness even if it means that we will go without the amenities of other churches, without the money, without the entertainment or respect that so many crave, even if we're relegated to being ignorant and mean folks in the back country. We choose faithfulness to the scriptures over everything else. And I would call these folks fundamentalists. I would just lean into it. I know a lot of folks don't like that term. I just think when you're talking about the the cultural dynamics at play, let's just let's just admit there are a lot of people like me who just don't think it's a valid use of our time to question God's word or the traditional understanding of what it means. I would call us fundamentalists. 
So for the fundies, uh, fundamentalists, uh, Graham's New York Times article is actually somewhat accurate. We were flabbergasted that an organization that supposedly has Christ at its center and maintains the scriptures as holy and authoritative could make room for prolonged acrimony and activism around human sexuality. While there is certainly unhappiness about lower standards around holiness, the straw that broke the camel's back was around the human sexuality conversation. For worldly people, sure, it makes sense that, that people outside of the church would be confused about human sexuality, but for Christians, for Methodists, uh, I and many others, I just felt like we were taking crazy pills for years. How, how did everybody lose their discernment to this degree? It seems very clear to me and others that uh, a, a prolonged intentional effort to co-op the United Methodist Church was afoot and largely has succeeded. So there are, of course, uh, stepping back from this, I, I, pro I provided four categories of people who've disaffiliated from the church. There are people who don't fit neatly into these categories, um, but I, I think these, these four categories represent the vast majority, I, I would say 98% of all the disaffiliators. And if you disagree with me, you can write about it in the comments, and I'll I'll read those and consider them. It could be that I'm completely off here. So this question, so Graham, worldly news outlets as they try and understand us, are they wrong as they identify the LGBTQ sexual revolution stuff uh, as, as the primary cause? Um, well, first I would say it's worth remembering that paragraph 2553 is explicitly only for those who have a problem with the stance on sexual ethics that the United Methodist Church has. So the actions or inactions around uh, conference leadership, around what the Book of, Ord uh, Book of Discipline says is the explicit language of paragraph 2553. So that was the only issue under which a church could rightly go through the disaffiliation process. And it is true that many churches and people who didn't feel very strongly about sex stuff, chose to use 2553 anyway as a means to exit the denomination for other more real reasons that I've already covered. For the practical, that was the first group, the growers, the charismatics, it does indeed mischaracterize the situation to say that it was caused or precipitated largely by LGBTQ ordination and marriage. Lots of them really didn't care about that stuff. To say that they wanted to leave because of it lumps them in with a caricature of homophobes that they don't like. They don't like the homophobes either. They stand with the culture against the homophobes. They just think that the United Methodist Church was going about that, that particular issue the wrong way maybe, or they were doing any number of things wrong. So when disaffiliation season began in earnest, paragraph 2553 was the only way out, and they they had to address in some capacity the gender theory stuff, but many chose to focus primarily on, on other issues in much greater measure. So it does seem disingenuous at, um, at this point to act as though gender theory had nothing to do with it, but it clearly wasn't the main thing for a lot of churches. Um, the fact that they shoehorned paragraph 2553 to fit their agenda does not mean that the language didn't matter at all. Uh, a big part of the problem of the United Methodist Church is that people chose to just disregard the plain meaning of the language that they had and just do whatever they want. And um, it's unfortunate, I think, that a lot of churches did do that with this provision. But it is what it is, you know. Uh, one might think that I'm kind of antipathetic or hostile 
to uh, the first three groups, the, the, what I've called the practical, the growers, the charismatics, because I've, I've called them out for being indifferent to the issue uh, that, that I think requires basic biblical discernment and faithfulness. And I've thrown my hat in with this fourth group, the fundamentalists. But the thing is, I understand why a lot of people don't want to be one of these fundies. You know, um, these groups understand that that when you really adopt this framework, you open a door to a frank conversation about biblical holiness that goes in a lot of very uncomfortable directions. Um, holiness corrects not just homosexuality and transsexual ideology, like that's not the only place where it rubs against the culture. Um, It rubs against infidelity in marriage, uh, divorce, sexual activity and singleness, idolatry of money, idolatry of power and worldliness, idolatry of pleasure and sports and leisure. Um, It it pushes back against uh, prioritizing affinity groups and comfort in our churches it, it pushes back against um, indifference to accountability and, and daily discipline. So these are things that undergird a lot of people that are now free of the United Methodist Church, and they don't want to talk about those things. They don't want to question all of the presuppositions under their way of life around those things. They just wanted to, to stem the tide and stop with the gay stuff. Um, a great many people who want to call themselves Methodists do not want to revisit these these areas, these examinations. Uh, it would cause a lot of more arguments and anxiety. They would rather just abandon the United Methodist Church for simpler issues that can be more easily addressed without all this other fallout and potential division. So even so, you know, I acknowledge this conversation about holiness and biblical faithfulness. It gets real divisive real quick, makes a lot of people very people very uncomfortable. But even so I, I I really think that's the only way forward if if we are going to be serious about salvation and damnation. Uh, so while I understand the desire to distract and talk about other stuff, this is the elephant in the room. Not homosexuality, but holiness. That's the primary issue, and we avoid it at our own peril. So I, I think that a number of folks in the first three camps imagine that if they focus on these other things as primary, good governance— um, um, church growth, evangelical zeal, then biblical holiness will follow. But I think that mentality is corrected by Jesus, who says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, holiness, righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. I think people are putting the cart before the horse. I think the thing right in front of us is holiness. I think holiness is of first importance. Good governance, growth, gifts of the Spirit will hopefully follow, but these things are actually of much lesser importance when held up against holiness. So it's a messy situation. It's been a messy situation for a long time. It's going to continue to be one. The The direction it's all headed now is that uh, the Global Methodist Church and the United Methodist Church are going to continue to have to have hard conversations if they want to at all resemble the body of Christ. And that's a real question. Um at least for the United Methodist Church. The re- reality of the global Methodist Church is that it's made up of a lot of the practical, the growers, and the charismatics, and the fundamentalists, and we're all sharing the same sandbox, but we're not sure how many belong in each group or how many of our leaders have divided loyalties. So I've heard it said that at least one of our bishops 
didn't really think that the the gay uh, sexual critical theory is actually a salvation issue, that that there was room for that if the United Methodist Church had actually uh, done some other things right. So that's a very different kind of leader. They, they probably think that I am uh, not uh, a very welcome presence in the global Methodist Church because I see holiness and, and sexual biblical holiness as, as essential, as a salvation issue. So other leaders and voices are talking a lot about gifts of the Spirit, about church growth. I don't hear a whole lot talking about biblical holiness and faithfulness. So it is quite possible that I am in a minority in this this group that is united by saying no to the United Methodist Church, but we might not all be saying yes to the same picture of what authentic discipleship and holiness looks like. Now, the reality of the United Methodist Church, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about global Methodists anymore. The United Methodist Church has withheld and constrained a great number of people who also fit in these four groups that, that I've talked about, including fundamentalists. There are still fundamentalists in the United Methodist Church. Many of these chose to stay because the Book of Discipline hasn't been changed yet, so they can't in good conscience leave until that happens. That is a legitimate place to stand. So others desperately wanted to leave, but their churches didn't have the money to consider it. There's a lot of people in this camp. Um, a lot of churches were blocked from doing this, either by pastors or superintendents. Um, a lot uh, failed to reach that supermajority vote, even if they cleared a majority of over 50%. If they didn't get that uh, two-thirds vote plus one, they couldn't make it out. A lot have left a long time before now. They just voted with their feet. Uh, many, many, though, are actually continuing to stay in the United Methodist Church and will continue to agitate for biblical faithfulness against the tide. And I think many in United Methodist Church leadership imagine that these people are just going to disappear, and I think groups like Young Methodists for Tradition, which is a, a small branch of the Project Reconquista uh, group. I think that they are going to disillusion the United Methodist Church, going to disabuse them of this notion. I think there are a lot that are happy warriors for Christ, and they have planted their feet in the United Methodist Church, and they are going to continue to uh, talk loudly and um, uh, confidently about United Methodist leadership having betrayed covenant. So in the midst of all this uh, I would say probably half of the people in the United Methodist Church still have no idea what's going on. They're completely ignorant. They've, they've been kept ignorant by the institution, and I, I think they will be easily manipulated into gumming up the works and, and being uh, publicly confused around all this. So uh, there is also in the United Methodist Church, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully not in the global Methodist Church, but there are bad actors who are happy to use whatever influence they have to ingratiate and aggrandize themselves to the detriment of salt of the earth members and a, a movement that really should be oriented around Christ. So many of these are self-evidently bad. You know, there's uh, there are a number of people that have been publicly leading that that repeatedly, habitually are disingenuous and false in their interpretations of others and what they believe. It's It shouldn't be an insurmountable problem, but it seems to be for the Methodists. So I'm praying for both groups, the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church. I would, I would love for uh, 
the remaining biblically faithful people in the United Methodist Church to be able to stop the change in the sexual ethics that looks inevitable at this point next year. I would love for them uh, to be able to, to stop the regionalization that seems on its face racist. Um, and I would love for the Global Methodist Church to take a strong countercultural stand for biblical faithfulness, even if it costs us a lot of growth and momentum. You know, that's that's the first temptation, I think, is before the GMC is how countercultural, how holy can we be against the tide of the culture versus how much are we going to try and just get everybody in, you know? So the success of biblical faithfulness, in my to my mind, in either group, UMC, GMC, will depend on two things. The discussion being had publicly and well, you know, not letting the bad actors take over. Uh, well, and well, that's the second part is having good faith actors uh, being in a place to act with integrity. So both of these things are only possible. Uh, they're only possible if we take the time and the effort to do these things well. It doesn't just magically happen. So I would just urge you to be in prayer with me for both groups. Uh, the Methodist heritage is a really great one. I would hate to see anyone fumble the ball. It, it looks like a pretty dark time right now, but uh, you know, a crisis point is also an opportunity point. And so I'm going to choose to be optimistic about people really reorienting around the question of what does biblical faithfulness require? What does holiness require? And of course, that does have sexual implications. But as I hope I've been clear up till now, it, it spreads out a lot bigger than that. So continue to be in prayer uh, for both groups. Continue to uh, help me hopefully be a, a decent public thinker around this stuff. I hope I'm helpful as I think through this stuff out loud with you. And um, if you want to uh, become a supporter of mine, you can go to plainspoken.locals.com. And uh, I would just urge you to, to continue to stay plugged in and engaged let me know your thoughts in the comments. Engage with other people who are trying to figure this stuff out. And if you want to write me privately, you can write me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. All right, thanks for taking the time with me. Uh, God bless you. I'll, I'll see you soon.